This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, November 13th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. One of the leading critics of greater regulation of financial markets is Todd Zawicki, professor of law at George Mason University. Today, Zawicki joins the Cato Institute as a senior fellow. We spoke last week about the state of efforts to regulate financial markets and some of his other scholarly pursuits. Donald Trump got some pretty big applause lines on the campaign trail uh, with respect to Dodd-Frank. And I suspect a lot of that was what the effects that Dodd-Frank had on consumer credit. Can you give me a sense of, of where that stands right now? It doesn't seem like it's been any part of uh, his agenda since he became president. The interesting thing about Dodd-Frank, and I've been touring the country talking about Dodd-Frank for years now, is Dodd-Frank was supposed to do one thing, which was to get rid of too big to fail. And as I've spoken all around the country, including the congressional staffers, when you ask a show of hands, there's basically not a single person in America who believes that Dodd-Frank did the one thing it was supposed to do, which is get rid of too big to fail. Um, 2,400 pages of law, tens of thousands of pages of regulation, tens of billions of dollars in compliance cost, and they didn't solve the one problem that they were supposed to solve. All of Dodd-Frank has that same sort of flavor to it, including the consumer credit uh, provisions. Uh, they moved a, uh, a regulatory reform bill, uh, reform bill of course, uh, this spring. <clears throat> it was really aimed at lifting the burden on uh, small banks and medium-sized banks, but they haven't really gotten to the heart of the issue. And I think what does resonate with a lot of people is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and there, or now as the acting director, Mick Mulvaney, calls it the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection. That is a, uh, a, a body completely unaccountable. Um, Congress has no control over its budget. One director appointed by the president, removable only for cause. Um, and it's uh, been called by me and others the simultaneously most powerful and least accountable government agency in American history. Uh, in his panel opinion for the D.C. Circuit, Brett Kavanaugh said it's the second most powerful office in America behind the president. Um, and what's like essentially happened with the CFPB is it's acted basically the way that you would expect a bureaucracy to act when you give it essentially unlimited power with no accountability. I remember uh, you and I talked about this a long time ago, pretty much right after CFPB came into existence. And I remember uh, either your comment or my comment was essentially – the, one of the big problems with CFPB is they only gave them one thing to do, <laughs> and that there, and that there was no there was no balancing interest uh, that we have in, in other uh, federal agencies. What what has that given us? That that's exactly right. Which is you know the, that they were said to protect consumers, but consumers and and this is what I call the the consumer protection dilemma, uh, which is that uh, or trade off, which is a consumer. Sure, they benefit. Everybody benefits when we reduce fraud and abuse and uh, deception. But consumers also benefit from things like more competition, more choice, uh, lower prices. And so, what the CFPB has done is really the way it executed its mission on. 
under Director Cordray was really focusing completely on the first and not at all on the second. Uh, and so what we saw as a result was mortgages became less available for low-income Americans. Credit cards have become uh, less available for low-income Americans. A lot of low-income Americans um, were forced to use payday loans. And the last thing that the prior director did was basically they looked at payday loans as a life raft for many Americans. And he decided to basically poke holes in the life raft on his way out the door. Only in Washington does increasing demand for a product mean you've got to get rid of it. Um, and that's exactly what you would expect. And so I think a new CFPB director uh, that President Trump has nominated, Kathy Kraninger, um, I would urge her to, uh, to, to to take a larger view of this and look at this trade-off, both the idea that consumers benefit from um, choice and competition of variety as well as consumer protection. And the final thing that I think is the most important thing to think about is I think that financial inclusion is a moral imperative. I think that uh, that the unintended consequences during the Obama administration were to take away bank accounts for low-income Americans, take away credit cards for low-income Americans, take away mortgages from low-income Americans, um, all because of this sort of, uh, you know, Naderite 1970s view of command and control regulation that ended up having these unintended consequences of taking choices away from consumers and as a result, dampening uh, the economy as well. What do you see as the biggest regulatory problem uh, in the housing market right now? I think that uh, uh, well, well, the, the, the biggest problem from a consumer perspective, in my view, is uh, across the whole array of consumer credit over the past uh, 10 or you know, during, the, during the Obama administration is that High-income Americans have been largely unaffected by all these uh, all these regulations. Low-income Americans have really been clobbered uh, by the way the rules uh, by the by the way the rules operate. Um, the other thing that has happened is that small banks have been clobbered. And if you look at the mortgage market in particular, a lot of small banks have simply exited that market um, because of the regulatory risk and the regulatory cost and everything else. Um, and so what we've seen is both uh, um, the big banks have gotten bigger, obviously, under Dodd-Frank. But the other thing we've seen in the housing market is that a lot of traditional banks have basically exited the market. Um, and that market niche has been filled by a lot of non-bank lenders. Um, and that's good. They're meeting an important market uh, d demand, but they're kind of completely in a different realm. Uh, companies that a lot of Americans haven't even heard of who are, who are uh, serving that, that market niche. So I would say the biggest issue I see right now in the housing market has been that the sheer cost, the sheer cost um, and complexity of the regulatory requirements um, have driven out a lot of uh, uh, providers of, uh, of credit um, and have made it more and more difficult and more and more costly for consumers to get mortgages, which has fallen particularly hard on low-income uh, Americans. Uh, we're talking to you today, of course, because you are a new senior fellow at the Cato Institute and welcome. Uh, if I'm the first, I hope I am the first to welcome you. But uh, You've also written a lot on consumer credit and how that has changed uh, over the decades. Uh, once upon a time, people would have credit at individual stores and it was, a, you know, a little, I guess, a little fuzzier. There was a lot more discretion that was applied. Uh, and now uh, consumer credit has shifted to a more... Uh, centralized bodies like credit card companies and uh, home equity lines and things like that. So 
what has that given us in terms of credit? Uh, you know, efficiency, obviously, but what else has that given us in terms of the quality of consumer credit that Americans can access? Well, I mean, say first, how thrilled I am to be to to be a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Obviously, my involvement with Cato goes back decades, uh, and my admiration of Cato goes back even further. Uh, this is really, uh, in, you know, become the mothership uh, for uh, for those of us who uh, believe in the uh, the view of uh, free markets and limited government uh, and um, the rule of law. And uh, it's a it's a thrill to be able to work with you and the other people in a more form here in a in a more formal fashion. With respect to consumer credit, <clears throat> I think there's uh, that that's there's a, a fundamental misconception about consumer credit, uh, which is people think that credit is just about consuming, right? It's uh, eating pizzas and putting on your credit card. The way to think about consumer credit and the way it's used by most Americans most of the time is as a form of investment, uh, which is a, a student loan or a house or a car or a refrigerator or a TV. These are capital investments that are made the same way that businesses make capital investments. So buying a refrigerator is fundamentally no different from a business buying a new computer system or a new or a new delivery van. It's something you buy that provides a stream of benefits over time, um, and it makes sense to finance it on credit. I, I think about the funny story in the 1920s when General Motors rolled out the General Motors Acceptance Corp so that people could get their car and pay for it as they drove it. Ford's response was to allow you to buy a car on layaway, <laughs> which was send us a check every month for 10 years, and at the end, we'll send you a car. Meanwhile, ride the bus, right? Uh, and if you understand why that doesn't make sense, uh, you understand that a car is a capital investment for a household the same way a delivery van is a capital investment for a business. Um, what we've really just seen then is the the modern consumer credit economy really starts in the, in the 40s with the migration to the suburbs. Uh, when people moved to Levittown, they had a car and a three-bedroom house, and they needed bedroom sets and refrigerators and modern appliances like stoves and all that sort of stuff. That was all financed on credit. And as you said, most of that credit, though, was provided by department stores, appliance stores. If you needed money for a car repair, you'd go to a personal finance company. And if you look at the data, what you see is that by about the mid-60s, um, as people had settled the suburbs, the level of debt burden properly measured on households was pretty much the same as it is now. And when credit cards came in, all that really did was just change uh, the way that consumers borrow. And that's because credit cards are better than a uh, taking out a line of credit at an appliance store or department store or whatever. They're cheaper. They're more flexible. It's more competitive. Consumers can pay it off uh, if they want to. They can revolve if they want to. Uh, and so when you look at the overall debt burden on households, it's not because of credit cards because credit cards just replace these other sorts of finance. And, the, and then the question becomes, are people using credit for the same reasons? And it looks mainly that that's the case as well, except for one big exception, with his, which is student loans. Uh, in 2010, and I think you and I have talked about this before, in 2010, I was attending a political event and uh, someone walked up to me with a petition and the petition said, uh, do you want to repeal the 17th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution? And I, I either this was shortly after or shortly before I had spoken to you about it, and I was shocked and amazed and delighted that somebody would approach me and suggest this highly specific <laughs> thing to uh, sign a petition about. And, uh, you know, you've written about this uh, as well. Uh, so 
17th Amendment, of course, is the direct election of senators. Why didn't we have uh, direct election of senators up until, uh, well, I guess whenever this was passed in the early part of the 20th century? I, I, a reporter recently uh, told me that I was uh, one of the leaders of the movement to repeal the 17th Amendment, uh, to which my response was, don't leaders have to have some followers? Uh, <laughs> it's a, uh, But there is an interesting thing about the 17th Amendment, which is it's very, uh, <clears throat> very little known, but also very important. Uh, and prior to the 17th Amendment, the United, uh, United States senators were appointed by state legislatures. Um, and it is clear why that was the case, which is that the framers saw the uh, the Senate as the place where federalism would be protected. They saw election of senators by state legislatures as both a necessary and sufficient condition for protecting federalism um, in the states against uh, um, being overwhelmed by the federal government. Um, and it worked imperfectly, largely because of the rise of political parties in the 19th century, but it did uh, in my view, have a substantial effect of, uh, of doing that um, during the 19th century of uh, protecting constitutional federalism. And the second thing, of course, uh, by having senators indirectly elected, um, it also served a function of what's called bicameralism, uh, which was to, to base the Senate on a different constituency base from the House of Representatives. And if you keep in mind, the purpose of the Constitution was to preserve individual liberty and to, uh, to restrict what was called the power of factions, right? What they called factions, we call special interest groups. And bicameralism, as uh, well as the other kind of constitutional checks and balances in the Constitution, were devised to protect individual liberty and to restrict the power of factions. Uh, and by basing the two houses on different constituencies, it was supposed to make it easier uh, to, to protect against interest groups and allow the public interest to prevail. And so that was one of the, the easiest provisions in the Constitutional Convention. There's almost no discussion. Everybody said, obviously, this is the way we're going to elect senators. And of course, that changed over time until 1913. The uh, 17th Amendment was passed and we moved to direct election. Uh, for anybody who's listening who would like a deeper dive on this, I guess they can go to your bio page at Cato.org, which should list uh, that podcast that we did uh, now several years ago. Um, you've, you're also working on right now a book with Cato's Neil McCluskey on higher education reform. And in, in doing that uh, work, what have, you, what have you learned about how we do higher ed in the U.S.? Yeah, this has been a multi-year project, and I've been really had a lot of fun working with Neil on this. Which is there, there's this old saying that uh, um, something that can't go on forever won't. Uh, and I think anybody who looks at the current landscape of higher education in America sees that, that that's the case. Uh, uh, it's becoming more and more expensive, and uh, there's no indication that quality w is increasing. And by many measures, people think quality is decreasing. And so the goal of the book, uh, which will be uh, published in January, is to think. Think about how could we harness market forces uh, to do for higher education what market forces do in other sectors of the economy, which is improve uh, to improve um, quality and reduce costs through competition and choice first, and then secondly, what are the barriers, and in particular the regulatory barriers, um, to um, increasing consumer choice um, and a competition in higher education? So we look at a whole range of things, starting from uh, what what was higher education like before uh, uh, government. Um, 
the government involvement, especially before the Morrill Act in the 19th century. Um, where are we today and what are the causes of our current malaise? And then we look forward and think about what are the alternatives and what kind of things might we be able to do to increase um, uh, choice and competition that might improve quality. Um, so it's a very exciting project um, and um, and a very comprehensive look at a very uh, complex issue. And how does this dovetail uh, with the work that you've done on consumer credit? You mentioned uh, student loans being you know um, this this massive uh, outstanding debt that a lot of uh, particularly young people have in the United States. How has that altered the sort of financial picture for people in the United States? Well, uh, well, in a nutshell, I mean, basically what we've managed to do with higher ed is recreate the American uh, healthcare system, uh, which is the heavy hand of the federal government um, is a huge third-party payer system. Um, and a lot of the problems we have are caused by the fact that we've got a third-party payer, the federal government, providing all these subsidies and all these student loans. And then th that requires the government to make sure that the, uh, you know, the that they're going to legitimate institutions, which then brings in an accreditation and all these sorts of things. Um, what's especially disturbing to me about student loans is, is two things, which is first, just the amount. The amount is staggering. We've never seen anything like the amount of student loans that people have taken on. In the early 1990s, it was 1% of the average household balance sheet um, in debt, leaving aside mortgages. Today, it's the single largest tranche of uh, consumer debt, about $1.3 trillion, car loans are about a trillion, and um, credit cards about $800 billion. It's 23 24 25% of the average household balance sheet. That's having all kinds of implications for the economy, for people being able to get uh, houses and cars and everything else. The second thing is that's very dismaying is, where is all that money going? The money is going to bureaucrats, university bureaucrats, and buildings. These Taj Mahal student centers and dorms and that sort of thing. The money is not going to um, to improving education by any way that we can measure it. Money is not going into the classroom. And so I think we have an interesting question here, which is twofold, which is first, what do we do about all this student loan debt? Number one, related to that is the fact that most people aren't even paying down their student loans. It's essentially a social welfare system. And number two, um, what do we do about the fact that the cost drivers are things that are basically bread and circuses? Um, and I think one of the things the book tees up is a serious public debate about um, should we be spending so much money uh, basically so people can have um, lazy rivers, so that these kids can have lazy rivers um, and these state-of-the-art um, uh, you know, rec centers and stuff like that. Uh, but you know, the driving factor is third-party payer. The driving factor is the government's heavy hand in this uh, in terms of uh, uh, loans, subsidies, and then regulation on the back end. Todd Zawicki is a freshly minted senior fellow at the Cato Institute. You can rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 